Hello, and welcome to Cap Talks by Synthase, the computer-aided biology podcast. In this series, we connect life science challenges with computer-aided biology solutions by talking to thought leaders and experts in diverse fields. Your hosts are Dr. Fane Mensa, Life Sciences Business Director at Synthase, and Dr. David Kirk, Science Communicator. You can find all our past episodes at synthase.com forward slash Cap Talks by Synthase. And we are on all major podcast platforms, so don't forget to subscribe. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of Cap Talks by Synthase, a computer-aided biology podcast. This is part two of our change management discussion with Tracy Howard, management consultant with Attainment Consulting Services, operating in the life science space. In our previous episode, we discussed the broader industry challenge of implementing the appropriate technologies in the appropriate organizations at the appropriate time as well as how vendors and tech developers should engage in that conversation with their prospective clients. Now we're taking a closer look at life science organizations, and Tracy will share her tips and tools to address user concerns and how to encourage successful adoption of computer-aided biology technologies. Tracy, thank you again for joining us. Thanks, Stephen. As always, your host is Fane Mensa, Life Science Business Director at Synthase. Fane, over to you. Thanks for that, David, and thanks for the introduction. Uh, Tracy again, uh, good to see you again. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed our, our last discussion on how vendors should approach organizations and it, it really highlighted the important role of developers in moving life sciences forward. Uh, we, ch- we touched on the need to include end users, to have a dialogue with vendors, not just one, but also multiple. So if, if, if you look into the companies a bit more and then especially at the end users, because um, speaking as a scientist myself, um, and, and David will agree on this. There are various differences. You've got the early adopters that are very keen on adapting new technology, um, but you've also got the more conventional scientists that are very comfortable with everything that they learned in, in, in academia or in their previous career. And they're probably a bit more conservative when it comes to adapting new, new, new change and new technologies. They're almost afraid sometimes to touch new equipment or go into new software or go into understanding new ways of working, even if it's really, really helpful and useful. What can you do as an organization to encourage this adoption of this new technology um, within a company? Because this is something that I think we see quite often, those really keen people versus the one that are not so keen and perhaps a bit more reserved. Right. I, I agree with you. We've we've likely all seen this. And that's probably because, you know, this is just a dynamic of, of human nature in general. Mm-hmm. Um, some people are more comfortable with, you know, and excited about new and different things. And, and other people like to feel more comfortable with their expertise and the way they do things. And they do it that way for a reason. But just as the needs and dynamics of individual organizations can vary. And we talked about that in the last episode and talking about how vendors need to understand that and going in. Um, That also applies to individual contributors within an organization. Different people have uh, different needs and different dynamics with how they engage uh, with change. So while it's unlikely that a change of technology or process will completely win every user's heart and mind, there are commonly used tools that can aid adoption. So I'll say for people in the audience, if you know actual the tactics of change management is of interest to you, maybe here's where be you know ready to take some notes for some things that you can explore further. So some of those tools are 
a case for change. And this is something you need to develop and effectively communicate. And there is loads of information online about what is a case for change. And, and we can even talk more about that. Um, another tool is a change journey. And that's really about using the idea of storytelling to bring users uh, along through the change journey um, from preparation to actually going through it and adjusting and all of those pieces. And the other part is really thinking about the implementation approach. And I think that's not specific to change management and more people will probably be familiar with that. But it is important to have a well thought out implementation approach and it's also important to communicate that effectively. So those are a few things and like I said, we can talk more about some of those pieces. Yeah, the first one I really just locked into my head was case for change. Can you talk me through that? How do you how do you make something like a case for change? Where do you start? Who do you get involved? What is what is the case of change? Sure, it's just a label and you can call it a lot of different things, but I think it's pretty intuitive. So a case for change, it doesn't have to be, like I said, you can find information online about this, but don't overthink it. Just think about basic communication. So answering questions like, why this? So what is the need for this uh, tool technology process initiative? What, what is the problem that you're aiming to solve? And this seems intuitive. You'd say, oh, of course you need that. But likely be surprised how many organizations I work with that completely skip this yeah. altogether. Yeah. Um, another question a case for a change should answer is why now? So what's the urgency? This is definitely the one that I see almost all organizations trip over. And that is why this, not that. And that's about competing priorities. And as you, you know, both yourself, Fane and, and David as well have probably seen, you have a diverse group of stakeholders in an organization and each person from individual users to, you know, biology leadership versus chemistry leadership versus the development team, all these different things, they're going to have their own things that they think are the most important to them. Yeah. So when you're implementing something, you need to address that question well, why are we doing this and not that? Because I think this is more important or I think this is more important. And it's not, everyone's not always going to agree on that, but you at least need to have an explanation for why this particular thing is moving forward and when those other things will come into play. The, not the last thing, but uh, kind of these are the, the core of a case for change. Don't forget to articulate the benefit. So we talked about why do you need this? You can talk about the problem you're trying to solve, but you may have also seen, seen where people think, oh, well, I have this problem and I'm just gonna implement this tool and then the problem is going to go away. Really think about what's the benefit. I have this problem or we could do this better and we're going to utilize this tool to do this and therefore we'll see this outcome or we'll see this result. So it really shows that you've thought through what the tool is going to do and how you're going to utilize it instead of just imagining that it's going to solve all of your problems. Yeah. Um, so just to summarize that, it's about what's the need for the tool? What problem is it solving? What's the urgency of why you need it now? why has this been prioritized over other things that are needed and what is the actual benefit that you're going to realize from um, making this change 
Yeah. Um, this is quite interesting because in one of our previous episodes, we spoke to Jesse Johnson um, from Viewpoint Therapeutics, and um, he focused on communication quite a lot as well. And he mentioned that sometimes you need a different way of communication for a different individual or a different um, part of your organization. If you look at those four points, why this, uh, why now, why this and not that, and what's the benefit? Do you think we need to be quite creative in bringing that across? Or is there a standard way of delivering this to uh, a diverse group of people? So when you talk about the case for change, what I will say is that this is the foundation, if you will, of the the second thing I mentioned about the change journey or change narrative and the storytelling. So this is just step one about even if you're trying, even if this hasn't moved forward yet and you're trying to get uh, buy-in from uh, budget holders or executive sponsorship, all of these things, you need to have articulated the case for change up front because this enables you to go to your different stakeholders and have a cohesive story that's going to help you get buy-in. If you're kind of all over the place and you haven't addressed these questions that are natural questions in the mind of the, the people that you're trying to get on board, it's going to be more challenging to get people on board. And I see this as well as um, a challenge amongst the even scientific leadership to all get on the same page. And a lot of times it's because they haven't thought through, okay, what is it that I'm actually trying to do and how do I articulate this well and have a cohesive story to share? That being the first piece. But when you talk about the change journey and the change narrative um, and kind of that storytelling to your question, Payne, about you know, is it the same message for everyone in the organization or do you have to tailor your messaging differently? For any initiative, and this usually happens a bit after kind of you develop your case for change, once you have buy-in and people have said, okay, this is going to move forward, be sure that you have a communication plan. Hmm. For changes that I've seen go well, uh, there's definitely a communication plan. For changes that I've seen stall and and not progress in a timely way or get abandoned, there's no communication plan. Again, this doesn't have to be over, you don't need to overthink it. These are kind of basic principles of communication. So a communication plan should outline what are your different audiences to your question, Fane, about, you know, is not in audiences to think about this, your executive sponsor or your uh, steering committee or the leadership team may need different information than individual end users or the chemistry group may uh, have a different lens and need different information from biology or, you know, from IT versus working with your scientific teams. So the audiences can be different for, for a good reason. And Fitting with that is the messaging. So like mm-hmm. I said, the messaging is different based on your audience segmentation. So I, I think that kind of goes to your question. There's two other pieces of this that are very critical and that's the method of delivery and the frequency of delivery. So, you know, okay, I have this communication and it's not just one, it's not just, hey, we're doing, a, we're doing this thing. Now I've told you about it. Okay, we communicated. It's about at what points along the way do you need to communicate what information specifically and how? Is it an email? Uh, Do you need to meet with people one-on-one? Do you need to do it in a group meeting? And should you just give regular updates in an existing meeting or do you need to develop 
uh, a new meeting just to talk about these things. So that's kind of the four pieces around audience, messaging, method of delivery, and frequency of delivery. And I, I just think it would be helpful to, to give an example um, around tailoring the messaging. So keep it brief. I can talk, like I said, a bit more about some things I've seen go, go wrong with this. And when I say brief, a good rule is to keep things um, to three to five key points, no more, never more than five. Trust me, it, it might sound like a silly rule, but it, it's true. Who knows? I'm gonna make a note of, I'm gonna make a note of that, no more than five. <laughs> no more than five points ever. Um, so, so when you're developing your messaging, make sure you also give a bit of an intro and context. People think sometimes when giving delivering messaging that other people that are receiving the message live inside their head. So you may have had many conversations with a bunch of different people about what's moving forward and you have all of that context. And then you just jump into the message of, hey, next Thursday, I need you to come to this meeting for these reasons. People are going to be like, what is this meeting about? Mm -hmm. I've never heard of this. What are we doing? So you don't want to raise more questions than you're answering. Um, so it's important to give context. On Thursday, I'd like you to come to this meeting because we're thinking about this initiative. This is where you can go back and leverage your case for change. You already kind of outlined the key, answer the key questions. Provide the required information and then be specific about the ask or the required action. Um, and, and when you're delivering that message, when you talk about method, we've probably all seen this, where you see this blast of very long, detailed information in an email. And then I work with client teams that will be frustrated or confused to say, well, we're not really getting engagement. So in general, emails are the least effective method of communication. They can work as an adjunct kind of to your communication strategy, but recognize that everyone's inbox is generally flooded and people have limited time to read through the details and digest it. They might not even see it. You know, I, I've seen teams that will send like a 10 tab Excel workbook with hundreds of rows of disorganized information on each tab and then say, oh, could everyone review this and provide feedback? So, you know, how helpful do you think the feedback was that they received if they got any? And then they'll say, well, you know, we've tried to get better engagement, but it's just too hard. We can't get people engaged. And, I'm, and that's where I get a little bit like, oh, this, this isn't that difficult. <laughs> um, but that is a poor strategy. So, you know, just better organize your information or better organizing your information and kind of condensing things into a digestible amount, delivering it appropriately. All of those pieces can make a huge difference in, in the success of, of managing your change. Absolutely. That's, that's really, really important, um, Tracy, especially around the communication, because I can imagine this is where a lot of the companies do it in the wrong way, right? Because they feel like we've got a solution in there. Um, we know exactly what we want. Our end users or the people that are using the technology will probably know that as well. And I think it's underestimated how important the communication is. So I think the points that you raise around audience, message, the method of delivery, but also frequencies is very important to, um, to make sure that comes across. Another really important point, what I think you should definitely have had tips on as well is the, obviously, let's say you've committed to a specific change. Um, in this case, let's say robotics or a new technology where not everyone is familiar with, which needs training. Uh, you can't just fill a lab with all these robots and expect everyone to get on board after weeks of training, probably next to take some time. 
But how do you usher in a substantial change like computer biology or like digitalization, especially within life sciences where protocols must be adapted, they change, there may be retraining, there's upscaling, and there's almost a need for philosophical cultural change as well um, within that organization. How do you go about that? Because it's not just, hey, we've got a new solution in, I've done all my messaging correctly. I've done all the things that need to be put in place. But as soon as we get started, we, want to, we also want to make sure that that goes around and not that everyone is using it in the first month or two months and then all of a sudden it just drops out. How do you keep that momentum? Yeah, that this is definitely important to think about momentum. I'm glad that you brought that up. And I uh, absolutely agree that you know significant change is not achieved with the flip of a switch or minimal preparation and guidance. Um, sometimes people for uh, maybe lack of a sufficient amount of focus or time kind of just think, oh yeah, we need that, let's put it in and they don't give it more thought. And then as you might imagine, then they only make things more complicated because now they have to deal with the complications of not having managed the change properly. Um, so two things that I think can help with this one is around, and I'll talk about this first, about really understanding the details of the change. And the second is around accountability and enforcement. Um, so to talk about understanding the details of the change, it's really important to, to think through what needs to happen. So which users will be impacted in what ways and how will the future state look different from the current state? Uh, when I see, sometimes when I see leadership make these decisions about, oh yes, you know, that'll make the process more efficient or this gives us be, uh, better uh, data integrity or whatever the reasoning is strategically for the decision, they don't actually think about the operational detail of what's required to make this new tool or technology work. Um, and if you skip over that, it can be challenging. So the detailed understanding also helps you effectively communicate the changes and help users anticipate and digest changes at a reasonable pace. When you see, not to, again, not to villainize leadership, but just to, to give a tangible example of where I've seen things go wrong is, again, maybe leadership is making a decision and they think, okay, so I'm going to do I'm going to communicate. I'm going to say, hey, I uh, just want to let you know this is changing. Okay, good. Okay, I've, I've communicated. That's it. Um, <laughs> and they, you're right. And they think that is an effective communication strategy. I mean, sometimes you even get people patting themselves on the back. I'm such a great leader. I communicate well with my team. And you're like, oh, okay. To inform a group that something is going to change it is not an effective communication strategy. So it, it can create a lot of questions and anxieties and unnecessary energy. I've seen things from, you know, consequences of people like looking for new jobs or people unnecessarily developing and inventing new processes for what they start to imagine will be a future state. And overall that can lower morale because the users will feel like they're not being included as part of the change planning. So when communicating the change, give as much detail as, you know, as is reasonable to build confidence that the change is planned, it has been operationally accounted for, and that the users and stakeholders will have guidance throughout the processes, uh, throughout the process of change. So as soon as possible, aim to communicate the details of specifically what's going to happen, 
when it's going to happen and how each group or individual will contribute and, and be impacted. So that's the kind of the first part around how to make people more comfortable with the change and kind of yeah. bring them into being part of the change. To your question, Shane, about ongoing uh, adoption or longer term benefit realization is kind of the more technical word that we use for it. But, you know, it, while it may be tempting to envision this future state where everyone loves the change and embraces it enthusiastically, it's important to have clarity on the most important aspects of the process or behavioral change. So sure, you could want these 10 things to be an outcome, but really know, okay, these you know, three, again, not more than five. No, I don't know that that applies here, but <laughs> prioritize, you know, what you have to do correctly versus what is a nice to do correctly. And make sure you have a mechanism to measure and monitor adherence. Uh, I rarely see this happen and I see it be problematic. Um, I rarely see it happen um, preemptively, and it's usually done in hindsight to realize, oh gosh, this kind of didn't turn out like we thought, and now we don't know how to course correct. Yeah. Um, and and think about your mechanisms for encouraging adherence. So, you know, if you if you're attempting to introduce robotics or computer-aided biology, not like any, it's not different than any other process or technology change. If you don't monitor and measure adoption, like I said, it's more difficult to address deviation and figure out how to encourage the desired behaviors because you won't have insight into where the process is breaking down or which groups or individuals need more guidance. So again, an example, I worked with a team, they were implementing an electronic lab notebook. And let's say these two things were important to them, and I'm going to oversimplify here, but they needed sign-off for an, each experiment record to indicate data was recorded properly and the appropriate processes were followed. Um, and they also needed to ensure that there was only a single record for each experiment. But they didn't think in advance about um, accountability. Um, and while they saw enthusiastic adoption of the ELN, they also saw loads of initiated but not completed experiments. So some data would be entered and recorded, and then they would abandon that record and kind of restart. And that has data integrity issues and, and a lot of different things. Like I said, I'm kind of oversimplifying here. But um, if that had been considered in advance, the tool could have been configured in a way that would have only allowed one experiment record to be opened by an individual user at concurrently. Right? So the good thing is that they did at least have the tools to monitor that and say, okay, specifically, is it more this group of individuals or these individuals that kind of maybe didn't understand the direction and need more guidance or is it across the board? And they, they were able to pull the reporting and say, okay, where, how do we correct for this? So those are just some things to think about. You know, like I said, that measuring, monitoring and thinking about your mechanism for kind of enforcement, accountability and that sustained adoption. Got it. That's probably one of the best tips I think uh, <laughs> I'm definitely going to take in from from the second uh, part of this this podcast because it's it's so important. You see quite often that this when you really see when it becomes a burden where you have identified a solution, you communicated it well, but then on the line 
it becomes less, less and less, and it eventually becomes a problem for the organization. So I think those points that you mentioned are very, very important. Um, we're almost coming to an end for this second part. I think loads of good tips, a lot of good uh, examples. Uh, and I just wanted to ask you one, one last question um, because the industry that we're in life sciences is quite complex. And I think it's very important to also look into other industries. Uh, and I just wanted to ask you, like looking at the field from your perspective and managing change in life sciences organization, how do you see the industry itself encouraging adoption of these computer biology tools? And how can we learn from, let's say, other industries that are adapting technology? Yeah, it, it, a, a good question in thinking about, you know, what are the factors that will encourage uh, adoption? And it's a, obviously a valuable question. You know, people say the million dollar question, the billion dollar question, who knows what the actual valuation is of getting these new technologies adopted and, and utilized. But you know, especially as we said in this industry about uh, just so many diverse drivers and forces that kind of shape individual uh, and collective decisions from the diverse industry players make it a bit difficult to predict, you know, exactly which pieces will come together in what order to make this new adoption or, or to make adoption of these new technologies become a reality and kind of where will that drive the future forward. Sometimes you see things like in, in the retail model where maybe uh, if you think about Walmart or more recently Amazon, how they did things differently to drive significant efficiencies and effectiveness and kind of set a new industry standard for supply chain management or e-commerce, things like that. So in those examples, you see uh, people utilizing maybe emerging technologies to successfully execute their operational and commercial strategies. So when they're successful, that likely draws attention of other players in the industry and that can encourage adoption. It's like another thing that comes to mind is cloud computing or cloud storage. So even as little, uh, you know, as recently as five or six years ago, I saw a leadership that was still not convinced that was an effective solution or a, a better option than on-premise servers. Now, every organization I work with has transitioned away from on-premise and or you know, are in the process of transitioning. This is about, I think, maybe going back to segmentation and when you think about adoption is better understanding the unique needs and challenges of different types of organizations can help better identify target organizations where these newer emerging technologies best fits. So when you think about um, cloud compute and cloud storage, it may not have been an appealing option for every organization, but there were those organizations with either a low barrier to entry or they had unique use cases where they were better served by this technology. And as they adopted it, uh, they kind of proved that it, it was um, a viable solution. And then as you get more adoption, obviously you grow the momentum. So I think that's, you know, just an example of where maybe taking something that's new that may not fit for everyone, finding where it does fit, proving out that it does work can help build momentum for uh, new and emerging technologies. 
I think that's a great way to end the podcast, Tracy. I, I thoroughly enjoyed our, our two-part episode. I think this is the first time we've done a two-part Cap Talk episode, but I think we covered so many important points when we started talking about vendors and what they can do when it comes to change management, all the way up to the second part where you really went into tips and, and in detailed examples of how we could do stuff better. Um, I think our listeners would definitely benefit from that. I've learned a lot myself and it was an absolute pleasure to, to speaking to you. And I think, uh, it was, it was a great way of, of tackling the, uh, the obstacle of change management. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Fane. It was a pleasure to have a conversation with you today. Tracy, thank you once again for sharing your uh, insights into this. Remember, you can find all of the Cab Talks by Synthase podcasts at synthase.com forward slash Cab Talks by Synthase. And we are on all major podcasting platforms. You can follow Synthase on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook for more updates on future episodes. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Tracy. And we will see you next time.